0: He's risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, you know it's a special occasion because I'm wearing a suit coat. Uh, so <laughs> it must be a special day. Um, so happy Easter. It's good to be with you. I, I just want to say from the get-go, if you're, uh, if you're a guest joining us this morning, just know it's an honor that you've uh, chosen to spend this morning with us, this occasion with us. I, I just from the get-go want to say uh, make something clear, which is we, we, don't want, we don't want anything from you. We want something for you. Uh, we want you to experience the life that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want all of us this morning for the next half an hour or so, I just want us to marinate in the significance of the resurrection. What is it that God has given us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because here's the thing, the resurrection changes everything. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, uh, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead." So because what Paul's saying there, he's saying, if, if, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then he's going to go on to say, then eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Just live it up. Easter is nothing more than gorge yourself on, you know, chocolate dinosaurs and Easter bunnies and peeps and whatnot, and that's as good as it gets. I think those things are amazing. Just, it's even greater, right? And so, That's as good as it gets. Eat, drink, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But here's what Paul says and what Matthew tells us and what we're celebrating this morning, that Jesus, in fact, some 2,000 years ago, on a day in history, walked out of the grave, was resurrected to newness of life, and therefore we eat, drink, and are merry today because we were dead yesterday. We are alive today because the tomb is empty, and therefore our hearts are full. And so what we're going to do is look at the significance of the resurrection. First, we are going to look at what the resurrection accomplishes. We're going to see in this scene that, and, and, and let me say this, before I move on, a running theme throughout this is this question that I wrestled with a lot this week. I, I pictured what if I were there and I encountered the resurrected Jesus and, and, I, and I actually encountered him. See. I always just assume when I encounter Jesus, it's just good news, right? Like it's good news because Jesus and his grace and everything. But here's the thing. What what if Jesus came back and he was just angry and mad? What if God just came back in complete wrath and that's it and Jesus was resurrected and actually it was the worst news in the world because the holy God has just entered the world and he's confronting us. See, in other words, what we have to do and what the resurrection scene does is it says, one, it reminds us of what Jesus accomplishes with the resurrection. But then it actually calls us to this moment of reckoning, this moment of reckoning as we encounter a holy God. And we begin to think about what it means to enter into the reality that Christ has given us in the resurrection. And then lastly, what we're going to look at is the reunion that Christ offers us with God so we might have life in him. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you that... This morning, we celebrate that the tomb is empty, and this is completely beyond our comprehension, our ability to completely grasp fully, but Lord, you have done it, and you have given us everlasting life, life that starts now in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you make our hearts come alive? Lord, I know that all of us are coming in here with various, along the spectrum of distractions, of guilt and shame for sin that we bring in here of just doubts of whether or not this whole thing is true. Lord, there are so many things that right now that are pulling us away, but Lord, I ask that in this time right now, Spirit, would you focus our hearts in, would you focus our minds in to hear your word, to hear directly from you in your word. And Spirit, would you bring your people to life Would you help us to grasp the life that you've given us in Jesus? And would we be a people who run from this place singing and rejoicing because we are alive forevermore in relationship with a holy God who is also a God of love, who is true, who is good. And you've welcomed us back to yourself. Lord, I am not capable of that message. Only your word is. And so Spirit, Would you implant that word upon our hearts? Would you afflict the comfortable? Would you make the comfortable? Uh, would Would you comfort the afflicted? Lord, wherever we are, would you do your work in us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, recreation. Uh, We're jumping in the Matthew's Gospel. If you've been here at Anthem, you know we've been in John's Gospel. Actually, we'll be working through John again starting next fall, and we'll actually next Easter be landing right at Easter at the resurrection scene. So we'll be in John next year, but we're jumping over to Matthew's Gospel. So a little bit as we jump in, Matthew's Gospel is uniquely, you could say, Uh, it it has a unique focus because it's trying to address a a distinctively Jewish audience. So Matthew will actually say things where he assumes that his audience gets the allusions, kind of the echoes from the Old Testament. And so there are a lot of themes and whatnot that that are being brought to a head here. In fact, in all the resurrection scenes on the cross and the resurrection, uh, Paul says that all the promises of God have found their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And the place where all the promises of Scripture and all the themes of Scripture come to a head are really at the cross and at the resurrection. So there are a lot of little details here that when we read them, we can easily miss them. So I'm going to set that up with what's going on in this by starting with this question that Matthew has uh, throughout his gospel. Because Matthew is going to answer something here in 28.1, and we could easily miss it unless we start back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and we get a sense of where he's going with this gospel. So at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in in chapter 1, verse 1, it starts with this. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, another way of translating that could actually be this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus and, and, and then he goes on to this genealogy about the lineage of Jesus, and you might, if you've been around church around like Christmas time, you might have read it, and you're like, oh, there's another one of those genealogies in Scripture, right, where it's just like people die, people die, and then you get to Jesus, and you're like, I don't know why that's there, right? <laughs> that's interesting. Family tree time. And so why are there these genealogies throughout Scripture? Well, that allusion back to Genesis and saying that something's happening here with Jesus is actually forcing the reader to think back about how everything began in Scripture, See, in Genesis, God creates the world, and then at the end of the week of creation, God then steps back in Genesis 2, 4, and it says, this is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, why is that being said? It's being said because it was meant to be that in that perfect state, in the presence of God, with joy in his presence. No sin, no death. That it was meant to be that that's how it was forever. There are no generations dying. That in fact it's supposed to be this is just the the generation of the heavens and the earth, and we're there with God, and we get to experience this forever and ever in God's presence. But here's the issue immediately in chapter three, death enters the picture through sin. And, and, and then you, you get into chapter 4 where Cain kills Abel, and then you get into uh, the end of chapter 4 where it's like you see just sin kind of permeating and corrupting all of creation, and it's starting to spread to like the arts and, and instrumentality, and it's just being used for all these evil purposes. And he's like, like they're, they're bragging about killing people and whatnot, and so it's just the world is going in this, this direction where death is just pervading everything. And then we get to Genesis 5. And if you've ever been done one of those like reading through the Bible in a year things, you may have gotten to Genesis 5 and you go, you kind of like hit a brick wall because it's just one long chapter that's a genealogy. So it's like Adam had a son, Adam lived for so many years, then he died, he had a son, he lived for so many years, he died and this guy had a son, he died and then he had another son and he lived so many years and then he died and this guy had a son and then on and on and on for a whole chapter and after about three or four verses of it, you're like, what are you, why is this here, right? Well, here's what's happening. In the Hebrew, there is no way to do an exclamation point. There are no punctuation marks in the Hebrew alphabet. There are no emojis, right? There's no smiley faces. There's nothing like fire symbols, right? There's nothing in the Hebrew text that could emphasize what is going on here. So what they did was they would repeat things. And what's being repeated there and therefore emphasized? Death. 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 This world that God had created where there be life in his presence, now death has entered that world and it's lost. And so what can be done? And all of scripture is essentially this big question, which is how do you get back to to Genesis 1? How do you get back to Genesis 2? How do you get back to that state with God as it was intended to be? We're in the presence of God. And that question is echoing all throughout Scripture, and that's what Matthew picks up. At the beginning of his gospel, he's saying, now we have the generations, this genealogy of this Jesus, and something is starting with him. And it goes from generation, death, generation, death, generation, death. But then eventually this Jesus comes, and there's no death at the end of Jesus' generation." And it seems to be that what Matthew's saying from the beginning is that he is bringing something new. In fact, something new yet at the same time a return to something ancient that was lost. And the question throughout Matthew's gospel is how will he do it? And then we come to Matthew chapter 28 and the resurrection scene. This is what it says. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn Of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. What's happening there, you, you could easily miss it. When it's referring her to the week, why is it on the first day of the week when God is now coming onto the scene, why does he even mention it? Because he's saying that at the dawn, right when the sun is rising throughout scripture, it's God's mercies are made new every morning. How? This one. What he has done. And now the dawn has risen on a completely new week. God is recreating all things. It's a new beginning. He's saying in this one right here, you are returning to that original life. He is the way. And it's all because of the fact that he conquered the grave and he is walking out of it. The resurrection is not some little sentimental thing. The resurrection is not some little idea just to give us verses to read at people's funerals. The resurrection is God saying, I am ending death and I am restoring what was lost. And everything in you yearns for that, whether you know it or not. But what was lost I, you know, I talked about Genesis 1, but what really was lost? And I, some of you have heard me go on this little spiel before. But I know that today there might be some of you who you're going, hey, I've never really been in the church, or, or I'm kind of checking this thing out. And there is dy- there is a specific reality to Christianity that makes it unique from all the world religions, and it's this, that before time began, God existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have the Trinity. God has revealed himself as an eternal being who's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And that's significant because God also reveals throughout Scripture in various places, but it's best summed up in 1 John where he says that God is love. In other words, where God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit from eternity past has been existing in this community with himself, and he's been constantly in in the purest form of love. And his relationship with himself is this holy, loving, glorious, righteous, good, and beautiful, pure relationship with himself. It's full of delight. It's full of passion. And from eternity past, that's been the reality that God has. He's fully satisfied in himself. But for no fault in himself and not because he needed to like actualize himself or like, you know, fulfill himself. It's just like a fountain overflowing. God decided at some point, I'm going to take this public. I'm going to create a world. And so he created, think of the cosmos, like a blank canvas that God made. And then he created on the canvas, this picture of what he is like. He is the creator. This is his creation. And as Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is his handiwork. It's all there and crafted in a specific way that we would look around. And as Romans 1 says, we would see his divine nature and his divine being in power. And we perceive this and we would go, there is someone out there who is unbelievable beyond what I can fathom. And so you have things like the seasons and the sun rising. And perhaps this says something of, that's how I am faithful, where you're not, I am. Things like the stars when it's like beyond, like you can't even comprehend of how far away, right? When you hear about like light years, like I don't know if you guys know this, like I was was laying out in my backyard with my daughter, we're looking up at the stars and I was like, you know, actually that star, that light, what we're looking at might actually be at the moment when Jesus was born, because it's like 2000 light years away. So actually we're looking back in the history right now, right, and her eight-year-old brain just literally like melted, right? Like we're just, it's, it's, it's hard to comprehend what God has created He's you think, I am that vast, I am that powerful, I am that beautiful, all the flowers blooming around us right now in the spring. God is constantly with his creation saying, this is what I'm like. As one theologian called it, he said, God created a theater of glory. Glory is the word for holiness gone public. God is holy, like think of the sun. Glory is the rays of the sun. God decided in his holy being to go public with it, and that's glory. And we live in a theater of God's glory. And at the height of that creation, he created us. At the culmination of it, then he creates man, and he says, okay, I'm not done yet. What I'm actually going to do now is I'm going to make people who are made in my image, which means they have the unique capacity to relate to me unlike the beasts of the field, to relate to me and know me and walk with me and not only just walk with me and obey my rules and all this kind of stuff we've made about religion. He's saying, I want them to walk with me and have the joy that I have, the love that I have in myself. I'm inviting them in so they would know it. And then I'm saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. In other words, take the raw materials of creation, have fun, cultivate it for my glory, worship and delight and create, create cities, create architecture, just just join in that creative endeavor. I've designed you for it. Have life with me. Let's go. It's just a feast. That's what was lost. That's the picture what Christianity gives us. That's what was created. That's what we were intended for. That's what was lost. Sin is not something cute. Death is not something cute. It's not just some idea to describe sin, which is actually just cute. It is the thing that removes us from the presence of that holy God, who is the God from which all our little bit of knowledge of love, of peace, of joy comes from. He created it and put it in our hearts. And what's happening here in the resurrection is Jesus is saying, I'm renewing that. I'm restoring it. I'm recreating it. I'm, I'm doing something which is really unimaginable, which is somehow I'm coming in, I'm dealing with death so that you can find that life again in me. That's incredible. In fact, this is right right after this, there's a reason why he does the Great Commission where he's, and the Great Commission, if you think about it, like in Genesis 1, it was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then you have in the Great Commission, go and make disciples and fill the earth and teach and obey. It's actually paralleled and it's parallel on purpose because what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, you fell, you're dead in your sins. You can no longer join in that original mandate from Genesis 1. But guess what? A new reality has come in me. And so now through new birth in me and knowing me, you can re-enter that reality you have purpose in your life, you have meaning in your life, I'm sending you out into the world, cultivate glory, make me known, filled with joy in my presence. In other words, in this life, it is as close as you can get back to that original reality. The whole point of the resurrection is that Jesus is recreating that life and he's saying, come in. That's amazing. Now, with that, at the same time before we can go in. Because here's the thing, after all, Jesus' death and resurrection were necessary because something went wrong, right? Jesus had to come into the earth and die for sins and and be resurrected because something went wrong and something's gone wrong in us and the world around us. In other words, we have to reckon with the fact that this is a holy God who's inviting us back into his presence, even though we're unholy. So there has to come a moment with this, where we reckon with that reality? How can we return to the presence of a holy God? So Jesus is recreating all things, but that's great news. But is it really good news for us? Or is that like we're going to be on the outside looking in like, oh, there it is. There's a new creation, but it's not for us. So what's that moment of reckoning? Uh, So second point, reckoning. Throughout Scripture, there's another theme that's developed ever since the fall. Once death enters... God's creation through our sin. And, and that's that there's this over and over again, whenever God's people try to go back into God's presence, they get close to Him. They draw near to Him. There are always these appearances of like uh, of messengers with swords, with, with lightning, and earthquakes, and fire. So, for instance, when they left the garden, what happens at the end of Genesis 3 is they're sent out of the garden. And God places at the entrance to the garden two angels who have swords that are flaming. Just this bright, blazing holiness, judgment. And if they ever tried to go in, they'd go under the judgment of God's holiness because they're bringing unrighteousness in. And then you get places like in the burning bush when God shows up with Moses. This fire, this purity, not consuming the world but also purifying it in his presence. And you get again and again when God says, come into my presence, draw near to me. Whenever you get those steps towards him, always a messenger will show up. It happens with Abraham. It happens again then when they start to go into the promised land with Joshua. And again and again you see the same thing. These these, these messengers with the sword of judgment, with fire, with lightning, with earthquakes, all these things, they show up to say a holy God is who you are drawing near to. For instance, let me give you the Joshua scene. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land, and they're just kind of like, deep, 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 milk and honey, right? And then they get to this right before they enter in, in, in Joshua 6. When Jer- Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or against us? All right, getting ready with the sword. And he said, no, 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 no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. In other words, I'm not for you or against you. That's the wrong question. I am for the Lord. And his holiness, his glory. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said, to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Over and over again, when God's people begin to draw near to God, and they get near his holy presence, when like something new in redemptive history happens and they get closer, all of a sudden, fire, the sword, kind of a messenger will show up. And again and again, what it's saying is, God is a God who is holy, and when you hear of the resurrection, it's not just this willy-nilly thing where it's like, oh, great, it's just resurrection for everyone, so we'll just live how we want, and we'll bring in all of our unrighteousness into the presence of God. No. That's a massive mistake. You've skipped a step there. A massive, important step, which God is saying, I want you to know life in me. I want you to know my holiness. I want you to know righteousness. I want you to know my glory. And I'm not going to settle for just allowing hell to enter my presence forever. Because guess what? Then that's hell. I want to give you heaven. I want to give you the garden. I want to give you life. And that means that we have a reckoning. And over and over again, when they have that reckoning, they encounter a messenger. And that's exactly why the angel shows up here at the tomb. Continuing in verse two, and behold, there was a great earthquake. There's the earthquakes again. Imagine everything shaking. I don't know if you guys have ever, I, I moved out here from Southern California two years ago. I'd never experienced an earthquake until I was living there and I was by a pool. And all of a sudden I'm just sitting there like, what's happening, right? And then the pool just starts sloshing around. Like, I never experienced anything. It's, it's the most disorienting, confusing thing because you just you, your insides are all dizzy and, you're, and you don't know what's going on. There's nothing. It's coming in and saying there is something powerful, earth-shaking, drawing near. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. There's that lightning that shows up again and again. The heavens, the earth below, the heavens above, all of creation just shaking and his clothing white as snow, pure, righteous. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Why is this here? You know, I, I want to... I remember when I was a kid, I I didn't really grow up around the church much, but I'm, you know, around holidays, we'd go. So I I would hear, these were like the only passages I grew up ever hearing from the Bible. And I remember hearing this passage, and in my mind, I had like this, I don't know how you picture the angel, but I had like a, it's kind of like Justin Bieber, like with angel wings, right? But like, okay, if you're older, like Fabio, like with his golden hair, right? And he's kind of like comes down like, he's just got like a, what's that? harp, right? And he comes down with a harp, and he just stands on the stone, and it's kind of like one of those circus bears, right, where he just, like, is, like, on the stone, like, moving it around, like, oh, excuse me, I'm just rolling back the stone, right? Like, he's just kind of cute, and so I always read this, and I was like, one, why do they fall down dead? Is he just so handsome? right? <laughs> they just faint, faint in his presence. Or is there something here that I'm missing? And here's the thing, throughout scripture, angels actually are terrifying beasts. Angels are these heavenly beings that capture the awesomeness of God's holiness. So they tend to have like heads of beasts and different parts of their body are different beasts and they're large and they, they just embody the presence of a God who is beyond our imagination that even if we saw him, we would drop dead. And they give a little picture of that. And so what happens here is this angel comes embodying the holy presence of God and he rolls away the stone. Why does he do this? Because what happens throughout Matthew's gospel that remember he came down from heaven. Matthew's gospel is one of the few places in scripture that refers to heaven a ton. The kingdom of God and heaven. It's a very specific phrase and in fact one of the first places where it shows up is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So this is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. At the beginning, it happens at Jesus's baptism. And listen to this, because it's going to set up what's going on here with the angel. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, what God's saying there is, if you want to have life, listen to this one. If you want to find me, listen to this one. This one right here, all the heavens, the Father and the Son, they're pointing at Jesus, saying this one, like a big old cosmic neon sign, like when you're going into Vegas, and it's this one right here. This is the one you want to look to. And what's happening here when the angel comes is he descends from heaven, and that question the whole time, how can we have life in him? How can we enter into that baptism? How will it happen? I mean, like, God, how will you actually secure this so it's not just some nice idea? And the angel descends from heaven, and he rolls back the stone, and he's saying the same thing, this one, through this event, through this reality, through this empty tomb is how you find life. And he comes with glory. He comes with power. And what he says is this one here, you must, in order to find that new reality, in order to us reckon with a holy God, this is a messenger from the Lord's angel, messenger from a holy God, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is yet to come. Holy, 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 I am. And this is his messenger embodying the reality that you must deal with this and come to this one. And it begins with looking into that tomb. See, in other words, what happens next is he says, he points them to the tomb. In verse 6, he tells them first to come see where he lay. And you can imagine the women who have come there, they walk into the tomb and they're looking around. You can imagine the smell that they have. They see the burial clothes folded there on the table. and and, And of course, possibly, you could say, well, what they're doing there is he wants to prove to them that Jesus was resurrected. That's why he's doing it. But is there something more? Because I think what happens, there's a reason why, again and again, it's look into the tomb before they meet the the risen Jesus. And what happens is they encounter this messenger from God, who's the holy presence of God, and he says, you must reckon with the reality, which is if you want to be in a holy God's presence, this must be your death. And you must enter into that death before you can meet the risen Christ and have life with him. As Paul says it in Romans, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in its resurrection like his. To enter the new creation, to find resurrection, we must die to living for our own glory. We must die to trying to take the place of God. In other words, what happens, just like here, it's referring, echoing back to Jesus' baptism. What happens is we have to acknowledge, God, you are righteous when you judge the world and say, It's unrighteous that there's death here, and we have to see it in ourselves. When we look at the cross, we say, That is the death I deserve. God, you have judged it righteous. Your judgment is true. It is good. And yes, even it is beautiful because you are the holy God of the universe and you're the only one who can judge in that way. And when I look at Jesus, I see the death I deserve. And I see the payment for my sins. The only way to come to the risen Christ, the only way to rise from the waters to new new life is to become one with Jesus in his death, to die to yourself, to die from living, just saying, I can be unholy, I can sin, I can live however I want, I don't have to listen to God, I can do it my way but instead to acknowledge, God, I've sinned against you to repent and to die to your former way of life so that you might find new life in Christ. It's a reckoning. It's right here in every gospel at the resurrection for a reason. Because here's the thing. The resurrection is a reckoning, and that life that we are meant to find is a reunion with the one that our souls longs for. We can't skip over it. So let's look at last, that reunion. What does it look like to come to Christ in His resurrection? I know, here's what I want to just kind of, I guess, address. Um, I know that for some of you, this may all be new. I said I didn't grow up in the church, and so I I remember being in in college and, and hearing many of these things for the very first time. It was very foreign. It was, frankly, it was very weird. I was like, what are you guys talking about? All this, you know, the sin stuff and death. And, and, I, and I hadn't heard about the whole idea of God and how he's created life and that we have life in him. But I, I remember I, I used to go, and I, I, even my story of when I, I came to Christ, I actually started in grade school. I actually used to go up to this church. My, my family didn't go to church, but I would go, to the catty corners of this United Methodist church. It was just the church that was there. And I would go up and I would sit actually in the balcony and I'd just watch. And, and for years I just watched. I was like that kid. They're like, who's that kid up in the balcony, right? <laughs> I was that kid, and I would just watch and I was drawn by like the warmth and the love there and everything. But here's the thing I was I was just curious about this Jesus. And and you may be here this morning where you're just you're curious, you're like, and you might also be here this morning where you're like, I I don't because at the time I was like, I don't I would have said I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. But I I, I wanna put my finger on something that I most likely you feel. It's summed up well. One of my favorite authors, Julian Barnes, he's an English author, and he wrote this autobiography called uh, Nothing to Be Frightened of. And he's an agnostic. He starts the book, though, where he said, "I, I, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. There's something in me that misses him, that longs for him. And, and honestly, it's either religion is just some kind of like great projection of all our desires in the world and we just project it off into God and create this fantasy, or it's because it comes down versus us reading up where it comes down where God has created us for something. He's created us for himself, and there actually is this magnet in our soul that's just kind of constantly looking for the other end, and it's just pulling us there. And it's this, whatever you call it, transcendence or looking for love or looking for meaning or whatever it is, but there's something in us that misses him. And here's the thing. I could give you all of the historical arguments for the resurrection, and, and they are overwhelming, honestly. You can Google it. There's tons of arguments out there and good books. And then people have the rejoiners, and then there's books on the rejo- answering the rejoiners, and There's tons of work that's done on that. But here's what I think, honestly, sometimes those are just smoke screens. Honestly, deep down, I think the thing that causes you to doubt and makes you think that, that deep down there's something in you that thinks that God wants nothing to do with you, that this isn't for you. I remember having this sense of being in the room and just feeling, Lonely would be the way I put it, and 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 I felt lonely because actually what I felt was that everyone else in the room, like kind of like this story, like all the Marys, right? The Marys show up when it when everything seems like to go wrong, but Mary still has faith. Like they're always the people who do the right thing; they're always there. And so I'm I'm in a church service and I'm looking around. I'm thinking like "I, I really think that actually this is just for the Marys. I think this is just for the people who have it together. This isn't really for people like me. God, if you, if you people knew what I've done, if you know the damage that my life has caused, if you, if you know the things I think, the things that I do, if you know the things done to me, whatever it might be, then you wouldn't actually extend this to me. And it seems more impossible for God to actually want and draw someone like me to himself, if he's even up there, than it seems possible for God to have walked out of the grave. It seems like a resurrection. I could see God doing that, but there's no way he would ever actually want me And I don't. I mean, I, I know I said people. You might be in a place where you're like, I, 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 I confess that I'm a Christian and I'm following Jesus. But yes, that's exactly what I feel. And the resurrection is Jesus coming to us and saying, no, I want you to hear that God, who is love, who created the world as an expression of his love, of his delight, now when the world falls, he's sending me into the world, the very heart of the Father, the very beloved Son, as an expression of saying, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son into the world. For us, and that love it, you know, it's, what I mean, by love, like why we miss God. We desire to experience the love of God. We have the sense that he would not want anything to do with us. And there's this old, it's called the Bedouin song. Here's what I mean by love. I love thee with a love that shall not die. Till the sun grows cold and the stars grow old. The sense that, God, would you love me with a love that does not die? I found loves and they just, they die off. They fade away. They whittle away a love that will extend beyond the creation, this love that will hold me, the love that says no matter what's going on in life and whatever the future may hold, there are arms that you know will hold you. You don't know what the future holds, but you know the one who holds you, and you know that he holds you in his love and his affection. And that those arms that hold you are the arms of justice and the arms of grace, having dealt with actually who I am and what I've done, and yet he still pulls me close. And you're wondering, how could a God ever, ever? That's what I know I desire, and I'm trying to find it, but there's no way the God of the universe would ever give that to me. And if there is a God, then I know that's where I'm supposed to find it. What if I told you that that actually is exa- nearly, literally, exactly what Jesus did to save you, to offer you this life, I should say? See, in all the, res- or the crucifixion accounts, What happens is that immediately when Jesus goes to the cross, the sky grows dark. You ever caught that when you're reading about the crucifixion? The sky grows dark. It grows dim, middle of the day. And then there's these earthquakes and things start happening and shaking around. And and what it is is, again, it's this manifestation of a holy God who's doing something. And what's happening at this moment is the the God who is love is now pouring out his wrath because his son has taken on our sin and what happens is the God who created this world out of love, He then pours out His wrath, and it's almost as if creation is manifesting this reality. That, in other words, God has put it all on the line in order to save, and it almost just completely comes apart. But what He says and what Jesus says to us, because listen, here's another thing: Why did the angel? He came to the tomb, and there was one thing he didn't have. First time, it didn't have it—a sword. He's at the tomb and he rolls it back. Why did he not have a sword? Why did he not meet them with that sword of righteousness and justice? Because Jesus, the Son of God, had undergone the sword, and now the tomb is open, and he says, come. It doesn't matter the depth of your sin. It doesn't matter the destruction that you've reaped, the breadth and width of it. It doesn't matter the height of your pride. It doesn't matter. The cross of Jesus Christ is higher. It's deeper. It's wider. And Jesus holds his arms open to you as he did on the cross and he walks out of the grave and he holds them open. And he says, come to me. And he says, literally, that love that you know deep down, where can I find it? He's saying, I loved thee with a love that shall not die because it's my love and I conquered the grave. And I love thee even when the sun grows cold and the stars grow old. My love will continue to reverberate in your soul for eternity. So this morning, if you're wondering, is it possible that something so unbelievable could be offered to me that God would love me? Yes. And here's the last detail of how I know that. What Jesus says to the two Mary's. Because you may be saying deep down, here's what it is. Yes, 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 that's for the Marys, but you don't understand. I'd call myself more a Judas. And what Jesus actually does here is he says, I know. And that's why I've done what I've done. When the women come to him, behold, Jesus met them in verse 9 and said, greetings. Interesting phrase, isn't it, for the first words you see after the resurrection? Imagine you go into a graveyard and your grandma comes up. Hi, right? (laughs) Like, understatement, grandma, and I just had a heart attack. Uh, But when he comes to him, greetings. Why does he say greetings? Of all the things that he could say, one, one, he didn't say, oh, Mary's, I'm glad you're here. You're the only ones who stuck around at the cross. You're the only ones who are here. Where do I get a hold of those other guys? Hmm? Doesn't say that. Because all the disciples had abandoned him they'd all left him but instead what jesus says is welcome or greetings why greetings he's giving them the message that he's going to send them with and here is where the only other time where that word greetings comes up in matthew's gospel a few chapters earlier it says this It's on the mouth of Judas when he betrays Jesus. He says, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is taking the very language that they would have heard, greetings, and then betrayal, turning around on God, rejecting God, catching them in, going our own way. And he says, I know that that's where you've been. And what I'm giving you is I'm giving you that very message. So when you say to them, go to your brothers, go to them who think I will want nothing to do with them. That I'm just going to be holiness coming for recompense. But grace precedes me and tell them greetings. The very words meant for betrayal Jesus has turned on its head, and he says, this will be a language of life. Use the very language that was used to betray me, to turn me over, and I will flip it on its head, and I will use it for your salvation. It's tell them greetings. And this morning, I don't know where you're at or how much you think that God could never reach down to where you're at, or even if you just this whole time thought God is nothing but just this mean God who just kills and and punishes and that's it. No, God is a God of love and he's protecting his holiness. So yes, there is judgment, but it's so that his beloved can have life with him. Just like someone does something to my kids, watch out, you're going to see a different side of me. Only I don't do it with perfect justice. He does. But God is a God who is after his people. And the women, when they realize what Jesus is saying, That he's saying, come to me. It is finished. Life is just beginning. Enter into my love. Enter into my presence. Enter into life with me. You can have forgiveness. Your shame can be removed. You can know me. And the women fall down at his feet. And they took hold of his feet. And they worshiped him. Because as something is happening there. Because as good Jewish women, they would have known that in the inner part of the temple where God's, it said, God's foot rest in the Holy of Holies, where God's feet met the earth and they come to him and they take his feet because they realize this is the one now where heaven has come down and heaven meets earth and this is where we find him. And they take hold of him and they worship him there because they know now they have direct access to God and life with him. Do you know that life? We all try to find life. It could be through the American dream. We think if we walk out of the tomb of failure and then we get onto the track of success, we'll find love and adulation in life. Some of us do it by maybe there's a narrative that we try to inhabit like coming out. And so we get out of the tomb of this former way of life and now we can find a new way of life and receive adulation. The issue is it will always fade if you don't have first this. This is the love you are meant for. And Jesus is offering it here. This is the life you're meant for. There has to be that reckoning, but then come to him and be reunited finally and forever, resurrected to life with God. On this day, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked out of a grave and his words echo to today. Greetings, enter in, come to me, drink deeply, have life, don't run. And I would say, church, cherish this reality today. Because while the world eats and drinks again, because tomorrow they die, we eat and drink and are merry and are filled with joy. For yesterday we were dead, but today the tomb is empty and our hearts are full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the life that you've given us in Jesus. Lord, apart from you revealing this in Jesus, when you revealing who you are, Lord, we would just be left to try to find life and we'd be languishing in this life, just making a worse and worse hell of it. But Lord, you call us to yourself and make yourself known in Christ. You say, this is the way of life. Come to me, as Jesus says, drink deeply from me. And so, Spirit, right now, all around this room, wherever we are in a place where whether we've confessed Christ, we've, we've walked that aisle, we've prayed that prayer, we've come to you, we've made a decision, we call ourselves Christians, but yet, deep down, we doubt, we come to the grave, and we doubt that you, Jesus, really want anything to do with us. And I don't know if that's something that is because of something in the past, because you had an earthly father that deeply hurt you, whatever it is, but... Lord, Spirit, would you call to life throughout the gospel accounts like in John? When you call them to life, you call Lazarus to life by name. Would you call by name now? Would you call John and Sam and Debbie? Would you call them to life? Would they hear their name? And when they walk out of the tomb and walk into everlasting life with you, God, you are sufficient for this. Remove whatever it is that holds us back from receiving your love in Jesus Christ, of turning away from death. Meet us with your grace. Greet us. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.